Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. This episode is about a video game called Bloodborne that was developed by From Software and released in 2015. We say 2014 during the episode because both of us can't remember, but um, that was incorrect. It was 2015. If you don't know anything about Bloodborne, don't worry, we'll introduce that when I when get to the conversation with my guest. But um, it was a good opportunity to kind of take um, a perspective on Utopia, which I haven't uh, taken before. My guest on the on the podcast is um, Rosie from the Diane podcast and the Shadow Trap podcast. Um, again, I won't explain what those are now because we do that in the conversation. But just to say that they're both um, really fantastic. Uh, I listen to both of them, and uh, yeah, I'd really recommend uh, recommend you give them a try. But um, anyway, Rosie has a background studying um, anthropology and, in particular, studying religion. And um, as you'll be aware, if you listen to this podcast, the the approach I've I primarily take to Utopia is is a secular one. I think it's primarily employed as a secular idea um, nowadays, at least. But yeah, I mean, Utopia can obviously also be approached with some kind of religious dimension, or we can say there are, there could be Utopian aspects to religion in terms of. Uh, um, both in theology, I guess, but also in terms of the structure of, of uh, religious communities and so on. So, yeah, it was a nice opportunity to take a look at um, Utopia from from a direction that I don't think I've really covered it before. So, yes, Bloodborne as a game, which, as we'll get into, is very much uh, about the uh, church in terms of its plot and is concerned with kind of gods and higher planes and all this type of stuff is a, a really nice opportunity to to talk about some of this stuff so yeah um i'll be back at the end to tell you about some other bits and pieces but for now i'll just leave you with um, my conversation with rosie joining me now is rosie from uh, the diane podcast and the shadow trap podcast thank you very much for coming on rosie Thank you very much for having me. Hello. Before we get on to talking about our topic today, which is um, Bloodborne, did you briefly want to sort of explain to people what uh, Diane and the Shadow Trap are? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I've got, yes, two podcasts, as you say. Um, Diane, which is on um, somewhat of a hiatus at the moment, but maybe back more regularly soon, which is a podcast about Twin Peaks. Um, and I've also got a show, The Shadow Trap, uh, where me and my co-host talk about monsters from a kind of uh cultural uh symbolic perspective so we've got a show that should be out i think by the time this goes up uh about the minotaur mm. i'd really recommend checking both those out i listen to both of them and they're really uh intelligent and fun and yeah um they're really great so i'd recommend checking them out but um as i said we are talking today about bloodborne and yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting. You said you you kind of pointed out to me when I, we were talking about you coming on that um, it tends to be uh, even on this podcast when we talk about utopia, it tends to be kind of a, a secular vision that we're talking about. Yeah, I found that really interesting. Um, my knowledge of sort of utopian texts is certainly not massively extensive, but I was aware of utopia having some roots in you know the work of Thomas More, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, to say that Thomas More was a religious man would be rather understating the case, you know, fervent, fervent believer, died for his version of Christianity. So it was interesting to me that utopia, which seems to be a sphere of discourse about how we might improve the world, which seems to me to have so much to do with theology, or to share so much ground, I suppose, with Mm. theology, um, that we're often discussing actually very secular visions. Yes, um, certainly true that um, religion is something I've barely given to consideration to on the podcast. Um, I've t- I touched on it very, very briefly in a in a um, Patreon episode on uh, utopia and music, and I was kind of talk- talking about this idea of utopia. Um, so, re- so religion obviously has the utopian aspect, which can sometimes be I would describe anti-utopian in the sense of heaven being a thing that comes later you know what mm. i mean so yeah. you you just kind of accept how things are now and like live by the rules and then you get utopia later in the next know. life yeah, yeah which is kind of to me an anti-utopian idea because it's like yeah not creating anything here but as you say in, in terms of when you think about um religious communities I and mean, when you think of the strong role that religions played for example in like the civil rights movement um, mm. in america there is a very uh there can be a very utopian aspect to religion and yeah i think you're right that that's something that doesn't really come up a lot when people talk about utopia yeah i mean i think there may be some actual sort of cultural reasoning for this um i think a lot of the time, I think it seems to me that we're dealing with texts, or science fiction texts, for instance, that are coming out of a cultural context where Protestantism is the background. And the thing with Protestantism is that it renders religion very much a kind of private affair. Uh, Protestantism says, you know, you read a sort of you read a book and you agree with the book and then you kind of have belief in your heart. And it's something that you can do very privately. It doesn't really need to enter the public sphere. And from this, we get kind of ideas about the secular realm, the realm of politics. And interestingly to me as well, the realm of science as uh, spheres in which God is particularly absent, particularly evacuated. And so obviously on a show like this, perhaps where we're discussing um, visions of utopia, it makes sense that we're talking about movements that are rooted in politics uh, a lot of the time, or, you know, science fiction, um, that these would be spheres in which you have alternative ways of imagining the future that don't involve or don't require, or maybe in which God isn't even um, particularly welcome. Yeah, <laughs> it's, It sort of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. If you think of, uh, I would say, utopian thinking as being like necessarily about community and that you're thinking about, uh, you're not, you're thinking about the condition of the society if you're thinking in utopian terms. Mm. And then as you say, yeah, if your religion is something that you think of in private term, in private terms rather than in terms of community, then it makes sense that it's not going to come out of that. Um, it just, I, I wanted to briefly ask you as well, because you, you have a background studying religion, right? I do, yeah. So I did my um, PhD research, it was a few years ago now. Um, I was doing my research around sort of 2010 kind of time, Um, finished up I think 2013. Um, I have a background in the anthropology of religion and I did my sort of fieldwork research, which you sort of always do for about a year when you're an anthropology student. Um, I did that with evangelical what we describe as charismatic Christians. Um, So those are forms of Christianity that are 
actually growing as a subset of global Christianity. I, I believe it's probably still the fastest growing form of Christianity in the world. And those are Christians who, um, broadly speaking, you're talking about people who are quite politically conservative, um, mm. who put a great stress on reading and studying the Bible, um, who really emphasise the need for a personal relationship with God. Um, but perhaps like most eye-catchingly and distinctively uh, for many of us, these are also Christians who pray in tongues, um, who believe in healing through the laying on of hands, forms of prophecy, things that we would see of as sort of supernatural. Uh, so I worked with Chris- those kinds of Christian churches in the UK. Mm, okay. Would you think of them as having like a utopian component to their thinking or not? Um Absolutely. Yeah, really, really strongly. Um, Christians talk about themselves as the Christians I work with would describe themselves as born again. That's a really important marker. And the idea is that you kind of you have a new life when you get saved, when Jesus comes into your into your heart, um, into your into your life. And as a result, you are able to build more authentic connections with people, more authentic communities. And the people that I worked with really considered it very important that their churches, um, the congregations that they were part of, reflected in some way um, a coming kingdom, um, a better world that was just around the corner. And and for them, um, particularly in, in charismatic movements, that's a form of Christianity in which it's not just something that's going to happen in, in the next life. It is something that you expect to happen kind of quite soon, basically, in the here and now. A lot of them are sort of millennialist. Um, they believe the end times are coming. They're just around the corner. Um, Jesus is coming back and the world is going to be completely transformed. But in the meantime, to get a sense of how it might look, you should be able to look at the charismatic or the, the, the congregation, the church, and hopefully that will give you a little um, taste of what heaven is going to be like. Mm. So do they do they tend to think those um, that kind of brand of Christianity you're talking yeah. about? Do they tend to think of utopia as something that's going to be delivered by God, or is or, or is there a kind of idea that they should be like themselves working to kind of create a better world? Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's certainly a question. The extent to which individual believers have a responsibility for um improving a world that as you say um that there's very much a feeling that um believers can't do a lot you can't really do a you can't do anything without god is something that a lot of people would say however they did think that once god had come to live within you once you were born again you certainly could improve the world and that there was some degree of responsibility to do so when I was doing my research, one of the churches that I was working with, for instance, uh, had a, uh, it was the wife of one of the pastors was quite involved in politics. Um, and they're around the um, Centre for Social Justice, which was Ian Duncan Smith's kind of um, group. I'm not sure if they're still going, um, but she was quite involved in that. And there was a sense, a real excitement about that, a real sense that, you know, oh, wonderful. This is, this is really important cultural work. You know, we're really going to, get in there and um, make society more Christian in some way, you know, that kind of work or engaging with sort of community work, sort of just much more locally was seen as being quite important. Um, Good, good work, good practice to be getting on with. 
Mm. Yeah, Ian Duncan Smith certainly the the perfect person to go to if you if, if you care about social justice. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not exactly to my taste, but yeah, that was that was very much the movement. I mean, a lot of the time people would be sort of necessarily where they were involved with politics would be much more right wing politics than my own. Mm. Uh, again, these are fairly conservative people a lot of the time. Yeah, sure. Okay, so as I said, we are talking about Bloodborne um, mm. today, so. I I think, I don't know, that lots of people that listen to this podcast play video games anyway, but um, I don't know if they all do, and I, I'd like this to be you know accessible for people who uh, don't know uh, the medium in, in detail. So I thought it, it might be useful if we just could uh, introduce the game a bit. So could you kind of explain a bit to people about what Bloodborne is? Yeah, sure. So Bloodborne is a game that was released... I've just realised I didn't look up the date. I think it was 2014, but I could be wrong about that. That sounds right. Okay, 2014 or possibly 15. Um, And it's a Japanese game. It comes from a studio called From Software. From Software have only sort of been releasing games that have been very popular for around the last... Uh, under 10 years really but they've had this absolutely huge impact um they are known for a particular style of game um that is difficult is one of the first things that people would say set in uh mysterious worlds where you go around battling monsters getting stronger and um finding out more about what happened in a vision of a world that is always sort of distinctly post-disaster I think is the term that you would probably use kind of distinctly dystopian mm. and yeah the yeah the, like you say the difficulty things like a big like it's um the idea is uh, and this is something that people always say you it's you start playing the game it seems impossible <laughs> at first yeah. and then you it's a game that um is unusually although this has become quite popular now but like Dark Souls is the game that kind of popularized this idea i think there was a tendency before dark souls for games to be um you know the idea that if you failed in some way like it was a game design problem mm. it's kind of a fashionable idea that dark souls has changed i think but yeah you 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 will quite often come up against things that seem possible and uh, impossible sorry and through like repetition you gradually come to comprehend like how the 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 abilities that like the the enemies you're fighting against have and how how you use the space and what have you and then suddenly you realize that you can do it and it's a kind of then you get to the next bit and it's kind of that like cycle right absolutely and it's it's really exciting um when when you're playing these games it's really interesting talking about it when i was thinking about it in relation to um kind of the people i worked with you know sort of born again chris Christians. Um, one thing that uh, you would always have within those uh, forms of Christianity, everyone um, has a kind of testimony of how sort of God came into their lives and, and improved it. And the weird thing with um, From Software with the Dark Souls games is um, a lot of people will tell similar kinds of stories about Dark Souls, you know, maybe not with the mm. same kind of cosmic um, soul defining ramifications, but certainly the idea, you know, I picked up this game and it made me better in some way. Is really, really, you see it incredibly widespread. So many think pieces, um, you know, YouTubers will tell these kinds of stories about these games, you know, that they improve your sense of um, 
self-efficacy and uh, being able to take on challenges because when you do face these games that are considered to be very very difficult and find that you can do them it's a wonderful feeling yeah yeah people talk about like life lessons that they've mm-hmm. got from it and all that's yeah i've seen a lot of that stuff as well yeah yeah i saw the peter uh, the actor peter serafinovich saying that yeah these games make you a better person <laughs> and it seems it feels like quite an extreme claim for a game but i think lots of us have had that kind of that kind of experience where it really did sort of change our feeling about video games in general if not you know totally ourselves it does have um it has an unusually like this it's it's kind of hard to describe if you you haven't experienced it but this mm. thing of like getting to a particular boss and just how impossible it was before and by the end just the way you breeze through to yes. the boss and and you finally after however many attempts you beat it it, it does it, it makes you feel incredible it's like yeah very it's um, exact it's exactly that it's that feeling that you know so often uh, video games seem to promise which is that oh you're going to become so much more powerful it's going to be amazing as you play this game and in fact what happens is um you get stronger guns and mm. you know your abilities get better you know the numbers that kind of go into your um attack rolling and stuff like that you know you actually just sort of get better on paper and so yeah. you're stronger and you deliver more damage whereas with um the souls games you actually do get better yeah. uh which is yeah a wonderful feeling yeah, sure. So this uh, world, the Bloodborne's set in, um, I would describe it as kind of gothic, uh, mm. Lovecraft-inspired world. Is that fair? I think so, yes. So big spires, dark gothic architecture. Yeah, I loved all that. I mean, I thought, I was thinking, you know, I learned a little bit about, I was looking a bit into the gothic recently, and the fact that gothic architecture has that kind of... Um, makes those kinds of appeal to religious architecture. Um, but for instance, our Houses of Parliament in the UK are sort of a famous example of Gothic architecture. And it was an attempt to sort of reinfuse uh, the sort of more secular realm with political, uh, sorry, with a religious aesthetic. You see that everywhere in Bloodborne. Yeah, it, yeah. I think you, you, you said to me that the, the whole, the whole uh, Yarnum, which is the city that Bloodborne set in, you said that everything looks like a church. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think that that is that's true. Something else we should say about the, the game in terms of its style uh, is it's um, very, very opaque, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's actually kind of a, a really important um, sort of aesthetic choice that is made by From Software in all the games. There's a really um, famous story that gets told about uh, the kind of the guy who's sort of credited as the um, most important lead on these games, Hidetaka Miyazaki. Um, he tells a story from his childhood uh, that he would go to libraries as a kid um, look at books of um, fantasy and, you know, books about sorcery and stuff like that. Um, they were often in English, but he couldn't really read English particularly well. He couldn't understand these books. So he would piece together the little bits of the text he could make out and look at the pictures and imagine for himself what might have happened in this story, what might have happened to this world. And, and it's that kind of experience that he has said he's trying to sort of recapture or create for people in um in the souls games and certainly bloodborne is a wonderful example of this you know it, it is opaque we don't really understand what's taken place it seems like it wasn't anything very good uh, because the world has completely fallen apart mm. so that's something to bear in mind when we're trying to talk about this story aspect yes. because it, it it's really 
yeah, it doesn't have a, a narrative in the sense of the way a lot of games do. Uh, a lot of stuff is left very open to, to interpretation. A lot of stuff's based on little details you might find here and there. It's mm. very vague in terms of goals. Like, what? it's not like other games that might set you up at the beginning. You are this character. Here is what you need to do and here's why you want to do it. It's not really uh, explicit what you're doing and why. A lot of no. the, a lot of the thing, the, the the systems the game has are not explained to you. This doesn't have a long tutorial explaining to you. Press this button to do this, and here's your menu. And this is all stuff you just kind of have to find out yourself, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. You just sort of wake up, and it's like, well, here you are in this mad, terrifying city. Have at it. Yeah. So the 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 beginning of the game is you. I believe it tells you at least your a foreigner who's come mm. to Yarnum, which is the city. You are receiving uh, a treatment, um, like a blood transfusion, basically b- blood yeah. healing. And then you wake up, and there's monsters, and yes. <laughs> that's kind of it. Like uh, the first time you die, which you will die very quickly, you end up in a, a place called the Hunter's Dream, which is like a uh, a nowhere place, like. Mm. We don't really know where this is supposed to be, and you you kind of um, have a have a guide there. Again, doesn't really tell you anything, but there's this dream space, and then you go back into the world and start finding monsters, and that's really it for the beginning. You don't really know why you're doing this, but you just progress to to find out. So that's a very rough uh, introduction to it. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I, I wanted to, to talk about was um, so I've covered a lot of dystopias on the podcast, but in terms of something that creates a, an actual feeling of dystopia, I think this is something that this game does really well and that video games have the potential to do really well. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's it's the thing with video games is, is being put in an environment. Um, I always find it's like the really thrilling thing, going somewhere that you can explore uh, because you can be surrounded by, um, you know, by the world, by buildings, by inhabitants, by noise, um, and and kind of allow it all to sort of flow over you. And uh, certainly Bloodborne establishes this really strong sense of place that I think is really important. Because it it did occur to me that um, when you're talking about dystopia or utopian fiction, you're talking about texts within which the the lands um the setting i guess is is really the kind of main character and that's really very mm-hmm. much the case in bloodborne yeah yeah and i presume you feel the same way as me on this it's a very kind of unpleasant place to inhabit <laughs> uh, a lot of the time it's again hard to articulate unless you actually play the game there's a real feeling of the place being like hostile um, mm. And this this partly ties back to to what we said about how opaque it is and the fact that there's so much unknown there, but you really feel unsafe and you really you know there's these like horrible noises you can hear kind of in the distance that you don't know what it is and you know the difficulty talks about plays into this as well this this lack of safety but it really um yeah it really uh, makes you uh, feel the dystopia and feel give you that sense of this is a place that's, you know, gone to hell. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, you just hear kind of a lot of the time just awful sort of screaming going on behind doors. Everyone you meet is mad and sort of cackling away to themselves. Um, the statues, I love the statues in Yarnum. When you walk around and you're like, oh, you know, they obviously had a bit of money in this place. There's, you know, sort of intricate railings everywhere and sort of carriages and um, it's it's very grand in a lot of respect. Um, and there are statues just everywhere uh, but the statues themselves are like people like who look like they're sort of wretches kind of beseeching upwards in these kind of poses of supplication and suffering um, you know something clearly there's been a recent disaster that's that's happened but it seems like even when the city was very wealthy you know and they were building all these statues there was something very rotten and sick going on because Nothing is upbeat. Everything is just smacks of absolute desperation the whole time. Yeah, yeah. It feels like the point that you're at was like the natural conclusion for mm, this place. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I thought there's something that just really jumped out to me, again, to, going back to like other stuff I've covered. Like I've covered a lot of um, you know cyberpunk, and this really made me think of the way like dystopias are often like cool right and uh, like, in cyberpunk the the degradation and the decay of the place is often like romanticized to a degree so yeah a lot of a lot of dystopias don't while they are on the surface dystopia the the, the way they're presented is it's something for you to like enjoy or it's kind of like a like a tourist destination in a way if you see yeah. what i mean for the the uh, whereas this it's this is not like you said it is a beautiful place still it doesn't it doesn't lose Mm. that it still manages to be beautiful but it's not a fun place to be it's not a pleasant place to inhabit no no there's no absolutely no feeling of oh yeah this this is a cool place to visit or um you know or the people who live here might be cool or having interesting exciting adventures you know no one's having exciting adventures or a fun time in Yarnum. that's that's completely out of the question <laughs> yeah okay so i'm going to ask you to try and do something quite difficult now if you okay which is could could you try and explain um a bit about bloodborne's story uh we've given a very 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 rough introduction to the you know how it sets you up but could you could you try and give us a bit more detail of, of what bloodborne is about yeah, sure. What a challenge. Um, yeah. This, I should say, I'm sort of piecing together from um, the great thing about these uh, these games, which are, as we've said, quite obscure, is that they have this incredibly active law community where people on the internet sort of exchange theories about yeah. what on earth happened. Um, so I'm sort of piecing it together from those uh, secondary sources. Um, but yes, it seems like what happened. There's a, there's a university near the city of Yarnum. Scholars who were working at that university were excavating ruins underneath the city and they found something. It's referred to as a holy medium. Um, at other points, it's referred to as a, as a god. Uh, they found something and it seemed to them that what they found could be used to push humanity forward in some way it it could be something that could bring about a new dawn of wonder and splendor there was a disagreement in the university community about how to do this how to approach this um body of a god um some people thought okay we need to try to be more like the gods we need to change our minds to resemble them better 
the process by which you do that is is difficult to um, understand mm. but it seemed to be something to do with sort of covering yourself with eyes mm. again vague difficult to understand uh, what you can understand seems quite gross uh, the other school uh, faction within the school was no no we just drink the blood yeah. uh, we consume the blood and then we have communion with the old gods and that faction became the powerful faction they eventually won over and they found the healing church uh, which promises healing for all the inhabitants of Yarnum and the wider world uh, if you undertake these blood transfusions, which, as you said, was the sort of first thing our character did on arriving in town. Mm. But you sort of discover that consuming this blood carries terrible, terrible risks and dangers, and it seems to have um, unleashed a curse on the on the whole town. Yeah, hence all these, like... Monsters and yes. humans slash like kind of uh, people that look like they're in the midst of turning into a werewolf kind of yes. thing. Yeah, um, that was a that was a good explanation. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't have like I would have, I wouldn't have liked to try that. Uh, so I think what's interesting about that is it seems that what this is kind of about, or one thing it can read as being about, is. Yes, it's really, when we think about utopia, we tend to think about the society, like what are the institutions, how do the rules function, et cetera, et cetera. This is about shifting it to being about like transforming yourself or like evolving humanity. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting to me that that was, um, that the all the scholars at this university at Bergenworth were, were instantly filled with the need, oh, well, we can do something wonderful with this. We can all evolve um, as a race. You know, it's an interesting uh, thing to go to as, as your first kind of point of contact uh, with these horrible old monsters. Um, but yes, certainly it's 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 it seems like it was able to transform Yarnum in the short term because the healing church became tremendously powerful and wealthy because the blood did heal people from everything we can tell. Hmm. Um but behind that, be it, so so Yana becomes very rich and powerful. But behind that certainly is this this primary concern, which is to do with um, ascending to some kind of different plane. And and really, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. This idea of utopia is um, a sort of more spiritual and infused idea of utopia, an idea that okay, we're all going to become closer to God, and mm. then you know, by doing this, the world is going to somehow improve. You know, this wonderful um, perverse impulse that you get within Lovecraft's work that then obviously is, is carried forth in Bloodborne. It's like, okay, fine, let's say everyone was sitting, everyone was communing with God, and then you finally get there, and what you get is not like this enlightened population who are all going to be able to relate to one another in a, in a better way, and you know, you're going to build a stronger, loving world to die in, etc., what you're actually going to get is tentacles sprouting from your head and everyone thinking in several dimensions and not even being able to talk to one another anymore. And, you know, <laughs> just completely changing consciousness might not actually be the best idea to get us to utopia. Um, yeah. And I just I just enjoy the perversity of that um, take on, uh, you know, transforming society through mass enlightenment. It does raise that question, though, of whether you need... So, you know, that I, I wouldn't take this, this position, but, mm. you, you know, there's still a lot of people who will see society, the problems with society as being like a, one of fundamental, like a, almost a character trait. Like people in poverty, they think of poverty as being a bad character trait, like it's mm. people's mm. fault. So it, it does tap into this 
debate or question of to what extent you need to kind of transform people before you can transform society yeah or whether you need to kind of in a sense do you need to do you need to create a new humanity to get to utopia yeah does everyone need to be sort of being the change that they want to see in the world before that change kind of comes about um, yes. I, I agree with you. You know, I, I wouldn't tend to agree with that. Um, my own background is um, I grew up in a sort of uh, human potential movement. My parents were members of a school of meditation, follow a guru, very involved in kind of new age culture. And you see that tendency within within that culture in, in the same way that you see it within sort of religious cultures and conservative Christianity. That idea, if if you want a better, if you want better conditions you need to be better. Um, mm. And I think there's some, there's a, there's a real sort of cruelty underlying that um, in some ways, I think. And, and, and it's also not particularly realistic for most people. And I think that's worth bearing in mind. A lot of the time when you're in Western co- context studying um, evangelical Christianity, or indeed if you were to do a study on, on New Ages in Western context, you're dealing with people who already have a great deal of freedom to spend hours and hours in prayer or meditation or, you know, devote their whole lives to motherhood or do whatever it is that they think uh, will give them the most spiritual satisfaction and lead them to be the most effective kinds of forms of themselves who can create a better world for others. Um, mm. You need a certain degree of uh, material comfort and yeah. spare time in order for that even to be a possibility. So you're, you're just not talking about something that's tremendously realistic. You know, you would need, I think, um, to obviously make changes in people's material conditions before people have time to pursue these kinds of loftier spiritual goals. Mm. Something I find whether this is a, a good thing or a, or a bad thing is a, a, another question, but yeah. certainly that idea of evolution of like humanity or people is something that's lost in utopia uh, now. And again, right. I'm not saying that's bad or good. I, I don't know, but mm. it's interesting to me that that's something that did used to exist very, very strongly and mm. can, can manifest in very different ways that could manifest in, for example, eugenics. But obviously, it also makes me think of like the the 60s -hmm. and, you know, the the hippie movement and, you know, the whole idea of like transforming your consciousness. Timothy Leary, Mm. like, you know, he was big on, you know, you take LSD and like do all these things to expand your consciousness and then you can like become like that for them. That was the way to transforming, uh, transforming society. But yeah, to me, the. that's kind of I mean eugenics obviously bad yeah. <laughs> the, the Leary stuff perhaps not so obviously harmful but to me can be quite kind of just taps into what you were saying about you know requiring some material comfort before you can jump <laughs> into this stuff you, yes. you, it tends to be a little bit self-obsessed I think I think I think it can be yeah I think I think if you spend an awful lot of time doing um internal work you know, and trying to uh, evolve your consciousness and stuff like that. Like you can do that, and um, and hopefully it brings you um, some some better sense of of happiness and well being. Um, but you know, where do you stop? You know, you can always journey deeper inside yourself. But I'm I'm not sure how much the payoff is in terms of improving the wider world for everyone. Um, I think it, it can be quite self absorbed. Mm. That's something that's uh, maybe in the game intentionally or not mm-hmm. in terms of the, uh, we've talked about this already, the, the sense of uh, the kind of rush you get when you 
you know, defeat a powerful enemy. And then that means you get loads of um, blood echoes, which is kind of the game's currency, yep. I should say, which you can use to become more powerful. So then you, you kind of get very absorbed in that loop of, you know, imp- making yourself more and more powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. And that just becomes the whole driving thing, you know, and then as soon as you, you know, you go back to the hunter's dream, you get more powerful because that's that sort of alternative realm you were talking about is where you go to improve yourself and your weapons and stuff. And then all you can think about is getting back out there, killing some more beasts. Um, And I think some characters in the game um, will sort of suggest that to you, that you they're a bit like you know i think there's a there's a hunter called jura for instance who you bump into who says this kind of thing you know that you've you just sort of came here for sort of medical treatment and now you've woken up and it seems as you go further and get stronger all you think about is is going further and getting more strong um and and what are you even doing in this city really you you didn't really know but suddenly your mission is all just about becoming as powerful as possible Mm. Well, there is yeah there's a that's i think in they talk about uh it's one of the items descriptions it says uh, maybe it's not i don't know or it's in the loading screen or something mm. it, it says about people don't tend to drink much alcohol in yarn because <laughs> blood is far more intoxicating mm. so it's in the idea of the game this idea of of it being like a yeah intoxicating <laughs> and you being kind of drawn into that absolutely and then obviously like the more blood you drink um the implication in the story as you sort of learn more and more about the world is oh it's the blood that creates these monsters in the first place and i guess i guess the idea is maybe you're going down that route yourself Mm. so uh, i wanted to ask you what comes to mind or or what you think bloodborne might have to say perhaps about institutions Mm. or systems because as, as we've already said this this whole thing of blood healing um that the story is about it's it's intimately tied to the the power of the church um so we have a, an institution that effectively administers this utopia in terms of you know where everything can be magically cured and so on and so forth so yeah. just wondered what kind of thoughts you had on that yeah i mean it was interesting I, when you um mentioned that um in 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 notes while we were discussing it before recording because i was thinking about all of a sudden oh well healing of course you know in in, in religious movements uh, healing is one of the first things that you'll see being made appeals to in terms of you come you join us you're going to enter into a better world and and the way that you know it's going to be better is that you're going to be healed um mm. so the form of Christianity that I worked in, charismatic Christianity, is greatly distinguished by a focus on spiritual healing, um, on people you may have seen or you may be familiar with um, the idea of people healing through laying on hands, praying over you, putting their hands on you and praying for healing. Um, mm-hmm. That's very much a practice that, that takes place and also delivering testimonies of healing. So when that form of healing has been effective, you then have a story that has tremendous currency. You can go around different congregations and tell this story and people are really keen to hear it. This is a very exciting uh, sphere of practice um, for these Christians. And likewise, you know, with my own background in um, New Age culture, healing there comes up so strongly. Um, The idea of alternative medicines, you know, nearly everyone my my parents hung out with would be engaged in some kind of um, other system of healing 
everyone was skeptical of what you'd call Western medicine with kind of scare quotes around it. Um, you know, the idea we can do better than this when it comes to healing, I think is a tremendously, tremendously powerful call to um, people's um, most basic desires so it's a really effective way to get people on board with a movement and as we see with the uh, with the healing church in Yarnum you know this is this is the institution that that ushers in and draws people into this new reality that's being created mm. I think that that's very very true and uh, again this is something you you said before before we did the podcast mm. but you, you pointed out that even even in like mainstream politics today Absolutely. the the idea of building a better system of healing is is really important i think that's so like when you think about the the kind of intense defensiveness that british people have of the national health service mm. it's really kind of I, I, I can't think of another institution like it that's so that people kind of hold so dear and protect so much and it's been perhaps it's been like the most resistant to it's been a real problem for you know conservatives to because in terms of the conservative ideology, they don't really like the NHS, but they, it's been difficult for them to say that. They, of course, like to privatise it like they have everything else. And they have had some success doing that, but they have to be very careful about doing it because it's so uh, intensely protected. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the, the, the level at which it's managed to endure, How what an inconvenience it is for the uh, conservative um, element in Britain. Yeah. And globally as well, because it's very, of course, in, even in America, um, when people are trying to make arguments for socialised health systems, the NHS is a very inconvenient thing to exist because it demonstrates how that can work. And of course, they like to say yeah. it doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, and I, it makes sense that healing is this kind of thing because it's core to... Um, you know, you want to talk about things that are core to the constitution of the self. Well, literally the place where we get bandaged up when we're sick, you know, that that's about as, as core as it can possibly get. So yeah, this tremendously powerful symbolic realm, really, um, you know, that we, we can think about in these terms is this just insanely, um, significant yeah. uh, sphere of sort of cultural thinking and and core to like the idea of utopia as well even if you go right. back to if you if you go back to it's more uh i suppose i would say like fantastical aspects of i'm thinking of, of less what i would call utopia but you know like um paradises it's like you mm. know you never get sick um, yes. every, everything's provided for and then yeah. on to on to what i would describe as a- actual utopias health is always going to be a, a key factor of that so yeah i think that's very true um mm. so one of the other um very significant parts of this um in terms of the whole uh, healing church thing and the blood and the these potential gods or great ones they talk about is children like i'm not quite sure what it's about again very vague it's mentioned mm. a lot uh, or it's mentioned in various places that the great ones lose their children and that they yes. yearn for a surrogate i think is a phrase that's used somewhere um so yeah i, I, I don't particularly know what it's about but i just wondered if you you had any thoughts on that yeah i mean what it's about in terms of the sort of game story as you say relatively vague it seems to be the case that perhaps children are um, being used within um, Yarnum itself uh, to generate more 
blood for the healing church but why the great ones themselves would be interested in children is is kept obscure I think to some extent or if it's not I I don't understand it either um I thought this was interesting because I was thinking a little bit about okay what are other sort of dystopian texts I'm familiar with well I mean I guess there's 1984 um, I guess that's a touch point for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and I know there's Bioshock as well and you've covered um later Bioshock game haven't you Bioshock Infinite but um, in the in the earlier Bioshock games the the way that children are brought into this version of dystopia they literally become sort of fodder for the system Um, the system kind of takes them over and they become the thing that generates um, the, the the plasmids on which the society is running so yeah I was just interested to think about that really and I assume I don't know if that's the case more broadly in dystopian fiction where sort of children are sort of possessed by this terrible system i think you're yeah i think you're 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 right to identify bioshock's a really good example where you say like the 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 little sisters are are kind of literally the people that administer the system and allow it to function um again through taking blood actually Mm. (laughs) um but um yeah there's certainly an idea that i mean we always think about how important it is for our ideology to be accepted by children yeah. if you if you know because they are they, when it, there's nothing worse than seeing like a child spouting like the ideology that you hate if yes. you if you you know what i mean yeah. it's it's something really horrible about that because it feels yeah it feels in, in some way like a if it's an ideology that you hate, it feels like it's a corruption in some way. Yeah. And it feels like, and obviously they are, when we, if we're thinking in utopian terms, we tend to be thinking in broader terms, like about uh, long periods of time, like futures, mm. how are things going to develop. And obviously children are always key to that because they are the coming into the future. Yes, they're creating the future. So... Yeah, I guess there's something there. Um, why the, again, why quite the great ones would be interested in it, being as they kind of exist on a different plane, I don't know. Mm. But yes, I think there's something in dystopian, yeah, in the, in the dystopian sister, the idea, the idea that the, it would hold sway over the, the children is, is very important. Mm. And it feels it feels like once you've got it, it, this isn't always the case, but we obviously we also have the idea that you need to get to whatever whatever it's about. We need to get this idea in the children quickly because then once it's in them, it's like it's set, and then that's how things will be. If you see what yeah, I mean. absolutely. And and I found um, in in my research and um, just in general, I think we can all recognise the idea of people being very concerned about what their children are learning at schools, particularly, as you say, where this is associated with cultural division, for instance. But yeah, certainly Christians I worked with, very concerned. And you see, obviously, in America, where homeschooling is such a movement, because people are tremendously concerned that their children are being taught within a system that they think is wrong. I mean, a lot of the people I worked with would essentially describe the system of of um, secular education and politics and and what's referred to as the world in general as 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 being a dystopia basically. So the idea of children being educated mm. within that was tremendously concerning for people. Mm. The way I I was very pleased to try you know take the podcast in a different direction away from the secular thing, but I was 
<laughs> I, have, I always have to bring it back to systems because I, I can't yes. help myself. But it, it made me think about this, uh, as you said, this suggestion that children maybe are being used to create more blood. Um, mm. Just maybe think of, of systems the way they tend to ha- have to feed themselves. Like the, the idea of the, the whole idea of blood administration system is that you're you're able to heal people. So you're able to like heal your community and um you know make everyone healthy but then in order to do that it's taking children and yeah harvesting them for blood which kind of mm. defeats the purpose uh of the first place if you you know your idea is to heal your community then you're you're killing your community to do it and yeah i think systems of often have this characteristic of doing what they need to do to keep functioning regardless of uh, whether the the um, stated goals are being met, if you see what see what I mean, they they need to just keep themselves going, and they tend to find ways to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it actually fits really nicely with the idea of of, of a world within Yarnum, which is. Um as you say kind of eating itself ends up consuming its own blood and and perhaps this uh the idea that it all first begins as they're digging out the ruins underneath the city you know it's like digging too deep in your own foundation or something um and 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 the whole world ends up collapsing in on itself uh, there was as well the the whole because it's when you when you start the game it um and you have these like uh mobs of like i said like half transformed people it, you get the impression that they're looking for monsters like they're out hunting i think they shout stuff at you like yes. they, they're shouting about like foul beasts and stuff but they don't realize that they are <laughs> transformed beasts so again the, the cyclical thing you've got like these transformed beasts out hunting for beasts in the streets and like yeah it's a very fits into that theme again I I love it I love it so much it's something that I really enjoy in Dark Souls as well just the idea um which has a similar kind of thing in a in a fantasy setting I guess um but the idea that there's these patrolmen wandering around still keeping their patrols against these terrible you know monsters without realizing that slowly slowly they've been becoming the monsters themselves but they're still they're still holding their patrol they're still guarding against you know all newcomers um there's something so wonderfully bleak about it you know this is a world that's um just deranged a world that's that's gone mad and uh, yeah something something enjoyable although very depressing in that yeah absolutely the the other thing that we've uh in terms of thinking about systems Mm. Um, I think a, a reading you could make is one that's often uh, can be applied to like vampire fiction. Oh yeah, um, where you know people have some people have thought about. And there's very obviously many very interpretations of uh, what vampires make. People can listen to Shadow Trap and uh, discover some of that stuff. But, they absolutely um, could, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but one of the readings you get is that uh, vampire fiction is about capital. Right. And, you know, this idea of a powerful person sucking, literally, you know, sucking the blood out mm-hmm. of you. Blood is has this kind of, uh, potentially has this kind of symbolism to it. And I don't know that I've got anything particularly perceptive to say about it, but I think you can apply that reading to Bloodborne because, like we said, the whole city is, the, the city's whole power it depends on blood it's it's the whole economy like mm. said, they don't use alcohol because blood's more intoxicating people characters offer you their blood at various points it's like this thing that you exchange 
and um yeah it, it, again this whole thing of it is, is a system it becomes it, it just continues to circulate the the blood is required to heal people and it takes the blood from the, the people to to feed itself and to keep the church's power going um even to this point where they have there's a, there's a suggestion that they start going out killing people that they well killing people who have fallen to this disease but also mm. people they think might be falling to this disease yeah again it's just this this sense that the system's become completely broken down but because it wants that it wants to keep going it keeps sucking the blood out of us and killing us to keep itself going keep the power there yeah absolutely and those transfusions you know you've just got to keep pumping that foreign blood into yourself uh, for as long as possible um, in the in the city of Yarnum, keep it circulating, take it from children, take it from wherever gods, take it from wherever you can get it and, and stuff yourself with it until you go completely mm. mad and then yeah. you go and get some more. Yeah. Okay, uh, another <laughs> difficult question, I think, um, which I, I would struggle to answer, so it's a bit cool of me to ask, but um, so this, at, at the end of... Bloodborne, we kind of get to a point where we, whenever we slay uh, a boss, we get, mm. uh, it's uh, it says prey slaughtered, is a message that comes up on the screen. And there's this whole idea in Bloodborne, which we, we haven't discussed, because again, the story is very <laughs> complex. And yeah. there's a whole suggestion of there being like an alternate reality created. Um, and when we complete the game, we kill the last boss, we get this message that says we have slayed the nightmare mm. it's again very vague um i don't know what that means i just wondered if you had any thoughts on <laughs> what we're supposed to take from the end of bloodborne yeah i mean it's difficult isn't it there's several endings to bloodborne oh, that's um, right, yeah. yeah and i've only seen um one of them uh, there's an ending you can take a bit earlier on where you sort of kill the last boss, what appears to be the last boss, and then you sort of get the option, oh, do you want to wake up now? And I always just go, yes, yes, I'd love to wake up now. That's um, what I did I'm, as well. <laughs> yeah, I've had quite enough of this, thank you very much. Um, but then if you if you go on and you, and you kill some more bosses, um, you kind of can get to this ending where, um, which I've only seen in YouTube videos, obviously, where you can... Um, the implication is that, okay, you've defeated the last god, you've kind of completely peeled back the veil of reality, you've seen the old gods for what they are, and you've destroyed um, this very powerful old god, and, and perhaps now you have ascended and you have become one of the old gods, and, and now this is all your realm and you're sort of in charge. It, it's quite a typical dark souls move that 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 kind of happens in the in the dark souls series as, as well possibly if we're reading the ending correctly uh, I, I quite like it you know it's this feeling again it's that hopelessness and and i i think that is something about the aesthetic of of dark souls and bloodborne that i really really enjoy um just being able to wallow in this very bleak world and and you think oh well maybe i'll change it maybe it will get better and um, and then when you finally beat the final boss, it's like, well, you're in charge now. And I always feel like you're usurping rather than um, destroying the system. You know, you're just going to become the new big boss. You're just going to become the new most powerful thing in that reality. But the cycle will continue. Um, to me, I think there's... Um, 
it pairs really nicely with the gameplay mechanic. You know, you get this feeling of this tremendous victory, this tremendous uh, self-efficacy. I can get better at this game. I can beat these bosses. Um, I can I can move forward and progress. Um, but you know, all the time that the, the game is saying to you, oh, it, can you actually change anything? Perhaps you really can't. Perhaps this world is just going through cycles, and you were just. Um, inevitably going to come along at some point and start the cycle again. Yeah, and even if you get that ending that you talked about where you like kind of defeat the the final guard and like become... You're like this little um, wiggly slug thing. (laughs) It's very like... Do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, look, now you're this massive, powerful (gasps) god of... You're like a little wiggly slug that uh, another character picks up and you're just kind of writhing there. It feels very... It's not like... um, It feels like it's trying to kind of undercut your sense of victory in some way and again like you said this this hopelessness kind of say okay well done you're a little slug thing now yeah what what does that even mean is that good who knows yeah Yeah, it's it's just wonderful but i think i think this is so i think this game raises a lot of interesting stuff in terms of thinking about you know stuff we've talked about in terms of the utopian aspects of a religion or god of religious thought but to me i think because of what you're saying I do kind of think of it as being anti-utopian in some sense because like you said it has this idea of and all the Souls games have this I think um this like you said a sense of a cycle that Mm. can't be broken it Mm. feels like yeah to me for that they're very kind of anti-utopian in the sense that you don't really have any agency to make things better and things just kind of go on as they are yeah I mean I was thinking about it from a theological point of view you know um it's a way that theology has been contrasted with anthropology, with my discipline, um, mm-hmm. is that anthropology is very good at um, imagining um, that the world might be different somewhere else, um, uh, you know, uh, in a foreign country, uh, you know, the culture next door might be very different to your own, but it, it struggles to un- um, imagine differences taking place here. It struggles to imagine um, change happening. Um and the Souls games uh, have have a similar kind of thing, you know. They they question whether change is really is really possible. Uh, so if it has a sort of theology to it, I would say it's a very bleak theology. It's a world that's sort of completely deprived of hope in some ways. Yeah, yeah. As you yeah, as you said, it's always uh, easier to imagine a different place somewhere else yes. rather than change here. That's something that that's always kind of a struggle for utopians i suppose so mm. yeah i think fits very nicely with in that um yeah uh, thank you very much for talking to me rose it's been fun to uh, chat about bloodborne absolutely touch on a kind of different approach to utopian than i normally do so uh, yeah thank you very much for that oh thank you for having me on uh where should people go if they would um, like to find the shadow trap and diane and so on you can find diane on twitter at diane podcast and the shadow trap is shadow trap hq on twitter um both shows available in all podcast listening destinations that i can think of cool okay thank you so that's the end of my conversation with rosie thank you as always for listening if you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, there are bonus episodes of the podcast available on patreon.com slash utopian horizons. You can find their episodes about conspiracy theory, uh, utopian music, 
there's a couple on some TV shows, there's one on a video game, and there'll probably be, yeah, I'm thinking of doing another video game for the next one, actually, or at least in the near future. So, yeah, if you, uh, if you're interested in, um, hearing some of that stuff, if you go to patreon.com slash utopian horizons, then you can get access to that there. Your support would also be very much appreciated in terms of, um, reviews on, uh, iTunes or whatever you listen to this on. That is a real big help. So if you could take a moment to, um, give me a review if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you've been enjoying it, that would be, um, that would just help more people to, uh, see the podcast and hopefully help it to, uh, keep growing. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. You can tweet me at utopianhorizons. You can send me a message on facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. There's also a Discord channel if you uh, want to join that. And you can, if you just go to the Twitter, Utopian Horizons, it's in the pin tweet if you wanted to join that as well. As I always say, I will be back as soon as I can. I've got lots of guests um, primed to come on and lots of ideas and plans for stuff um, I want to cover in the in the coming months. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening and I'll see you again soon. Bye.